What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. A new law temporarily removes the statute of limitations on sexual assault. Women incarcerated in New York prisons are taking advantage of it to bravely report sexual assault in the state's prisons. We're joined this morning by Molly Hagan, a writer and photographer in New York, whose latest piece for the appeal is called New York's Imprisoned Women Brave Risk to Sue Sexual Abusers Under New Law. Good morning, Molly. Hi. Hi, Kat. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Really glad to have you. Always happy to have our friends from the appeal on these airwaves. Molly, what is the New York Adult Survivors Act? Yes. So um, the piece I wrote is structured around the Adult Survivors Act, but it's also really about the larger culture of sexual abuse in New York State women's prisons. But the Adult Survivors Act is a look-back law similar to a law that went into effect a couple of years ago called the Children's Victim, Child Victims Act. So basically it allows people who are over 18 to file civil claims alleging sexual abuse and harassment regardless of the statute of limitation. So you have one year to file claims for abuse that might have happened years ago. And what was really curious to me about all of the early publicity around the ASA was that it was centered around women in prison even though the public face of the law is Jean Carroll, who is using the law to sue Donald Trump and his company for sexual assault. So also what is interesting to me is these aren't criminal cases. So because people are filing claims, uh, they can essentially cast a wider net saying, you know, this workplace fostered an environment where abuse could happen. Or in the case of women in prison, the state fostered an environment where this abuse was routine, which is a pretty powerful argument, regardless of what the courts will ultimately decide. Um, so while I was glad that that issue was getting some attention in these early pieces about the ASA, I also felt like it wasn't quite uh, capturing the totality of, of the abuse that we know is taking place in prisons um, because we do know that sexual abuse and harassment in all prisons is basically standard. Like some facilities are arguably worse than others, but the carceral institution itself, you know, the totality of its control over a person, the extraordinary power balance between prisoners and staff, the extreme deprivation creates an environment where abuse thrives. And then also legally in New York, um, a prisoner cannot consent to any kind of sexual contact um, with someone who is le- legally designated as their custodian. Um, so anyway, this, this kind of abuse is widespread. It's super well documented by groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the BOJ, the federal government. I talk about this in the piece. The federal government created PREA, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act in 2003, with some understanding that custodial abuse, meaning staff abuse of prisoners rather than abuse among incarcerated people was happening. And yet every few years, there's a story or in this case, a law that comes out that suggests that this is something singular to one facility or in general, some kind of revelation. Um, So regardless, a lot of the early reporting on the ASA focused on 
a prison called Bayview, uh, which was a smaller prison in Manhattan, had a long history of staff abuse, and it closed in 2012. And while the pieces never said it directly, paired with the nature of the law, like paired with the ASA as a look-back law, it kind of created a sense that this was something in the past. That, that women who had been incarcerated at Bayview that is now closed were suing under this law uh, that the abuse was over. You know what I mean? Um, so so when in writing about the law, I wanted to give space for those women, you know, some of whom were at Bayview, to talk about their abuse, which they many of them had not talked about before. But I also really wanted to highlight that these kind of abuses are happening right now in prisons across the state and that while the law itself is significant in that it is taking aim at a very real culture of silence which is a phrase a lot of women i talked to used uh it needs to also have some value for people who are still in prison and still living that culture today Okay, I'm gonna back us up, and and I want to sort of go step by step through through some of the the points that you just made. I want to go back mm-hmm. to how we got here, who pushed for the law, and why. Tug at that thread a little bit more for me, please. Yeah, I I know that Jean Carroll uh, was a significant part of the law. What's interesting is that my reporting kind of came in post the passage of the law because in the pushing for the the law really came from the child victims act. Like it was inspired by the child, the child victims act was a similar look back law that said, uh, if you're under 18, you have, you have, it ended up being a two year look back window because it was during the pandemic, but Mm -hmm. you have this certain window to file civil claims against your abuser and the institution that abuser worked for. Um, so there was a lot of like, there was a lot of political interest in creating a similar law for adults. And in pushing for that law, there was no mention of, of people in prison at all. Um, when it was signed, you know, when it went into effect, that's, that's what I found really interesting is that that connection seemed to be made post about the time that look back window opened. Um, so it was not made with the intention uh, of addressing systemic sexual abuse in prisons. M- Molly, you, you mentioned that these cases weren't criminal. So are these mm-hmm. civil cases and is there there a potential for them to become criminal cases um no so they're civil cases they're 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 claims so basically people are suing for financial damages um it's it, it is interesting i mean as as an abolitionist that you know i i that is amenable uh, to me, but uh, it is interesting that these are very serious uh, claims. I mean, you're talking about very, very serious acts and harms. Um, 
so yeah, the, the Child Victims Act was the same way. So there is a sense of, um, uh, how do I want to put it? Like a gesture of this is, um, this is our mea culpa to you. Like, um, we, we didn't address the harm when it happened to you in the way that our justice system should have. So here is, is what we can offer you now, which is, is, is far less than we would have at the time. The women that are reporting these crimes, um, some of them are formerly incarcerated, so they're on the outside, but some mm-hmm. of these women are inside. Can you talk about the risks women who are reporting these types of assaults face if they're still locked up? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so most of the women filing claims are out of prison. And um, it's interesting, a lot of activists I talk to really want to share information about the ASA with people on the inside, but they're even afraid to do that. They're afraid to talk about it on the phone. They're afraid to, you know, send letters containing legal information about it. Um, But yeah, I, I talked to a woman named Kim who's in the article, who is filing a claim. She is one of a few. I mean, I know of a handful, but it is very, it's, it's what was most frightening to me is that, so, so taking Kim as an example, Kim um, is filing a claim for uh, harm that happened to her in the nineties. She is still incarcerated. Um, The, the person she is alleging this abuse from no longer works at the facility. Um, but there is just a sense of, um, solidarity among staff. I mean, it's, there is a sense of like, you don't know what could happen. So it could, you know, the retaliation can take so many forms and for women in prison who have experienced abuse and retaliation, it's, it's just a constant fear ranging from, physical abuse, sexual abuse, to just small uh, ways of like, you know, holding your packages or, you know, like increase in disciplinary tickets that, you know, could get you put more time on your sentence. You know what I mean? Things like that, where it's like, you don't really, there's no way to really quantify what the retaliation will look like. And I think that's one of the scariest things for them is that, they don't know. And I think that's also why, I mean, a huge reason why women in prison don't report abuse in the first place. And also, while I do want to give one slight caveat, abuse, sexual abuse, custodial sexual abuse happens in all prisons, not just women's prisons. I focused on women's prisons for this piece because at the time I was working on it, um, all of the claims I found uh, were from people at women's facilities, which I thought was kind of interesting. But this this is certainly a problem at, at men's prisons too. But um, but yeah, I but this is a reason why people don't report abuse in the first place is just a fear of the, they don't know what could happen to them if they do. And are there any guardrails inside of the ASA to to protect women from retaliation? Or does it even acknowledge? 
No, because because it really doesn't deal with any of the legality of, of prison at all, which I thought was also a little um, interesting in terms of pitching this as a law that will benefit them. And it and it might. I mean, I think there are like a lot of ways in which that this this law could be beneficial to women in prison and formerly incarcerated women. But it is not set up with any understanding of the complexities of of the legal complexities of what it means to be incarcerated um, at all. So I, I yeah, that that's that's I, I feel that 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 protection is not is not there. Molly, you talked about this being, you know, widespread in New York. We know it's it's widespread in prisons across mm-hmm. the 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 country. Let's mm-hmm. let's and you've mentioned Kim a couple of times. What kinds of stories are emerging about what women are experiencing or have experienced inside? And you can maybe start with Kim. Yeah, I I um Kim, I I was interested in Kim's story because I also really wanted to highlight I felt that some of the reporting around the ASA and I feel like some Me Too reporting tends to focus on very obvious, very um, extreme cases of abuse. And, and obviously in prison, anywhere, there, there are plenty of examples of that. But what I really wanted to highlight is that abuse, sexual abuse, and sexual harassment in prison is complex and pervasive. It is baked into the system in ways that are difficult to quantify. So taking Kim as an example, Kim um, Kim had an experience with a lieutenant at the prison where she was incarcerated and and it's still she is still at the same place. Um, and you know, she, in her talking about it, she says there were moments where she felt that his attention made her feel good. You know, that, that you are in this situation where you are locked up perhaps for the rest of your life. Perhaps you will never receive any kind of romantic attention ever again in your life. It's very, very complicated, very complex. And if the only romantic attention you receive is from this more powerful person who can lord it over you, you know what I, so it's, I think in the, for those reasons, it was still a very scary situation for her, but I think it was difficult for her to, I think she blamed herself because there were moments where she felt willing but that's not that's still not right you know what i mean she she right. she had no power in this situation and i think it was important for me to highlight those things too that it it's not always like a, a forcible assault it is more complex than that and we still have to support and acknowledge these situations as wrong 
What about Julie? Can you talk to us about what happened to mm. her? Yeah. Julie, that was, that's actually an interesting story, too. Um, Julie was actually, when she was transferred to Albion, which is a larger women's prison way upstate in New York, like on the Canadian border, um, she was placed on a suicide watch and a guard um, that basically they have a guard, like they have a single guard that is, is, is supposed to be watching you for the full 24 hour period. And that guard is not, is supposed to be of the same gender. And this guard was a man and she described to me the horror of, you know, being naked and in this like, in a flimsy kind of almost hospital gown and having him lecherously, you know, watch her for this entire period, having to ask him for underwear for, you know, feminine hygiene products, you know, asking if he could watch her bathe, you know, and it was horrifying. And what it also to me illustrates, the everydayness of some of this abuse that mm -hmm. it is baked into interactions, not all interact, you know what I mean? But it's like yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the idea that that kind of interaction between someone who you must listen to, that you must follow their orders could happen at any moment is very, very scary. Um, there was another woman in the piece who talks about being afraid to go to the bathroom because the man who is pursuing her, they can, they can just come in and corner you in a stall. I mean, it's that, that fear and that coercion was, was really striking to me. Yeah, there was a line, and I've got to wrap it up, but there was a line, I can't remember mm. which woman, that said that she just felt like this was just part of her sentence. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. <sighs> All right, Molly, I've got to leave it there. Thank you for your work. Well, we hope to so have much. you back on the airwaves. Absolutely. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>